Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. For 40 years, cost-benefit analysis has been the centerpiece of White House oversight of administrative agencies. And in that time, the basic framework for cost-benefit analysis has developed significantly, growing much more nuanced and precise. What role should Congress and the courts play in modern cost-benefit analysis? That is the question raised by the paper we're discussing today. Its title is Congress and the Stability of the Cost-Benefit Analysis Consensus. And its author is Caroline Seacott, an assistant professor of law here at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Caroline, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Adam. Thank you. We're lucky to be joined also by Professor Richard Revez of New York University. Uh, Ricky is NYU's Lawrence King Professor of Law and the law school's Dean Emeritus. He directs the law school's Institute for Policy Integrity, a really important and influential organization. And he's author of countless books and articles that are must-reads for anyone who wants to think seriously about the issues we're discussing today. His books include Retaking Rationality, How Cost-Benefit Analysis Can Better Protect the Environment and Our Health, which he co-authored with Michael Livermore in 2008. And soon, he and Professor Livermore return with a new book, Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of Our Environment and Our Health. Ricky, thanks for joining us, too. Thank you so much, Adam, for including me. I'm delighted to be here to comment uh, on Caroline's terrific paper. Well, great. Well, Caroline, let's begin with you and your terrific paper. Could you describe the cost-benefit analysis consensus and how the Congress and the courts fit into it? Sure. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Ricky. Uh, it's great to gather with you even virtually and chat about this paper. Uh, so as Adam said, this paper is about agency cost-benefit analysis. I and Ricky have, uh, among others, have written about this practice, the prevalence, stability, quality, transparency, judicial review. And this paper is a little bit different because I focus on Congress. So it essentially has three parts. I start by highlighting what I think are three potential threats to the consensus on cost-benefit analysis. Uh, So first, the practice relies on continued presidential support, and I flag that this support might diminish in the future. Cost-benefit analysis has already constrained some of the Trump administration's uh, actions, leading to lower support for the practice among some conservatives. And to the extent the administration has tried to cook the books in some cases, there's been lower trust in the analysis among liberals. There have already been calls, actually, from organizations such as the Center for Progressive Reform, urging a future President Biden to drop OIRA and cost-benefit analysis. And as you mentioned, Ricky, along with Michael Livermore, have a book coming out documenting the treatment of cost-benefit analysis under the Trump administration and their views on how the practice might be saved, appropriately subtitled Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. So I hope we'll get to talk more about this specific threat. I also see potential threats to the consensus from courts on two fronts. There's now a majority on the Supreme Court that has signaled the desire to rethink the non-delegation doctrine. The court hasn't granted cert on any promising case yet, and it's hard to speculate what a reimagined doctrine might even look like, but it's not far-fetched to think that it might have implications for cost-benefit analysis. At least some of the recent fights about the non-delegation doctrine have centered on risk management decision-making and cost-benefit analysis. For example, the Benzing case in American Trucking. 
And perhaps most troubling for the consensus is this growing view among some legal scholars and agency officials that arbitrary and capricious review goes too far. It is too hard of a look and that courts should back off. So most recently, Richard Epstein has called for an end to hard look review of agency fact finding in his recent book, The Dubious Morality of Modern Administrative Law. So he argues that agencies are like lower courts. And that current administrative law has it exactly backwards, that there should be no deference on questions of law and extreme deference on questions of fact, which has been the realm of cost-benefit analysis and arbitrary and capricious review. So I argue that these threats, the consensus, should motivate us to take a closer look at Congress and its relationship uh, to CBA. The conventional wisdom is that Congress has nothing to say on cost-benefit analysis. Or if anything, it has not warmed to cost-benefit analysis the way agencies and courts have and is actively hostile to it. So scholars that focus on cost-benefit analysis don't tend to focus much on Congress, except perhaps to weigh in on whether congressional silence means agencies can do cost-benefit analysis or not in a specific provision. And Congress has repeatedly failed to pass legislation requiring cost-benefit analysis, despite many opportunities to do so. Um, there's even been some high-profile, nonpartisan congressional rejections of cost-benefit analysis. So the impression has sort of persisted. The second, the, the second part of the paper examines this congressional record on cost-benefit analysis more closely, looking at some specific congressional invocations of cost-benefit analysis since 1981. There are more of these um, I, than I at least expected to find, but I'll highlight two takeaways now. Um, from these provisions. So first, when Congress passed legislation invoking cost-benefit analysis, it has generally not required agencies to only issue regulations with benefits greater than costs. Instead, it has simply required agencies to consider the results of a cost-benefit analysis, so to consider both the costs and benefits before issuing regulation. And second, in cases where trade-offs were apparent on both sides, and especially at times of crisis, including public health crises, Congress actually did pass cost-benefit-specific risk management provisions. Statements in the record show that Congress was aware of and grappling with the trade-offs and wanted the agency to weigh in with its expertise. This was especially surprising to me because it went against the conventional wisdom of how Congress might respond in a crisis. So based on these takeaways, the final part of the paper, which I think needs the most development still, so I look forward to some feedback, is meant to be a discussion about what the future of CBA is in light of the congressional record. So the gist is that I'm optimistic that cost-benefit analysis legislation can pass, but I think the Regulatory Accountability Act and other bills like it have gone astray because they require not only more than current executive order requirements, but also more than Congress ever really does with respect to cost-benefit analysis for specific situations, uh, and much less in a cross-cutting way. A bill that required consideration of cost-benefit analysis, I think would be much more likely to be adopted and would buttress the cost-benefit analysis consensus enough so it wouldn't depend on just the, the whim of the president. And second, I weigh in on the brewing, arbitrary, and capricious hard-look debate. I argue that the congressional record supports the view that Congress delegates via cost-benefit analysis, at least in some cases, in order to commit the agency 
to expertise in managing trade-offs. And this is why I disagree with scholars like Richard Epstein, who argue that agencies are like courts and that courts should defer to agency fact-finding unless clearly erroneous. Instead, courts should enforce the bargain that Congress struck and should continue to ensure that cost-benefit analyses are consistent, evaluate important categories of costs and benefits, and disclose important data or assumptions. So again, I, I welcome your feedback on this preliminary draft. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Maybe just one follow-up question before we turn to Ricky. Um, in your presentation, you, you alluded to the fact that the Trump administration is, has at some points sort of bristled at the, the constraints of cost-benefit analysis. Now, when President Trump came to office, he made, his, he made a lot of news with his executive order on the equivalent, I guess, of regulatory budgeting and the, the two-for-one rule, as, as they called it. So in some ways, the administration was seen as sort of reinforcing at least the cost side of cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> Could you flesh out the other side of, of the record just so we, we have a better sense of, of the full picture? Right. So in cost-benefit analysis, so it is true that the Trump administration has passed executive order, I believe it's 13771, requiring uh, uh budgeting among agencies to sort of force them to consider the costs more. That executive order doesn't mention benefits. So there was a lot of concern among uh, legal scholars and other observers that this was uh, an effort to devalue in general the importance of benefits. And in fact, in the executive order, there's in the budgeting in general, uh, there's no accounting for really net beneficial actions. It's all about the costs and whether we're accounting for the costs. So I have actually an article with Michael Livermore discussing why we think that this sort of, uh, that this executive order is not it doesn't actually enforce these uh rationality and reasonableness considerations that cost benefit analysis does um and in terms of other things well that I'd love to bring in Ricky here because actually his book does the terrific accounting of all the different ways that the Trump administration has attempted to circumvent requirements of cost-benefit analysis, at least in some cases. So there's certain norms about cost-benefit analysis. And uh, there's been examples of the administration potentially violating these norms. And in some cases, courts have pushed back on this. Um, so some that come to mind, um, you know, benefits that might have been previously uh, calculated under a prior regulation issued by the Obama administration all of a sudden disappear in the um, in the accounting when uh, the Trump administration is trying to rescind that uh, action. Uh, so why might that be the case? Usually uh, we're trying to collect more data on benefits and costs. We're trying to work and go into the direction of more quantification as more evidence. Why would, why would there be a, a disappearance of things that previously were calculated that no longer are calculated? So these kinds of moves require more explanation, et cetera. And sometimes it's unclear if this was based on any kind of scientific foundation. So these are the sorts of concerns that, um, have uh, these are the sort of moves that have concerned some folks about what the Trump administration has been doing. Well, thanks for all that. Maybe we'll return to that later with Ricky, but I'm I'm very uh, keen to hear Ricky's thoughts on the paper overall. Ricky, what are your reactions?
Thank you, Adam, and thank you, Caroline. As I said at the outset, this is a terrific paper, and it's it'll be a great contribution to this literature. Um, I agree with Caroline that we're at a crossroads. Um, the issues of cost-benefit analysis have come to the fore um, in connection with um, mostly deregulatory measures of the Trump administration. Um, as Adam mentioned, I run um, the Institute for Policy Integrity at, um, at NYU Law School, and we keep a tracker on our website of how the Trump administration has fared when its actions have been challenged in court. Um, and its win record is around 15%. Um, normally an administration wins about 70% of the cases uh, where their regulatory policies are challenged. So this is really an abysmal record. And there's a reason for it. And the reason has a lot to do with uh, the issues that we're talking about. The quality of the analysis is really bad. And I'll just, I mean, I, I could talk for a long time. I, you know, I've written a book about this, but I'll give you just one example. Um, as, as, you, as you know, the Trump administration has called into question the use of co-benefits. Um, that is the indirect benefits of regulations to justify them. At the same time, it's really embraced a very aggressive use of um, co-costs, of indirect costs. It's taking the position that the indirect consequences of regulation have to be taken into account if they're um, negative and have to be ignored if they're positive. I mean, this sounds like a textbook example of arbitrary and capricious action. If you ask a layperson about this, they'll say, yeah, that sounds arbitrary and capricious. And I think courts would see it that way as well. But it, it, it gets worse. They're not even prepared um, to be consistent on this approach. So in withdrawing um, the uh, appropriate and necessary determination supporting the mercury toxic standards, um, they say that the consideration of, co of co-benefits is, is inappropriate. But the whole justification for the rollback uh, of the clean car standards in the SAFE rule is based on co-benefits. That is, the rule looks terrible without co-benefits. It's actually net costly even with, with co-benefits, but all of the work is done by safety. And EPA has no safety jurisdiction. Um, EPA's jurisdiction is about uh, reducing air pollution. And NHTSA, EPA's partner in this endeavor, does have a safety jurisdiction, but not under the CAFE standards. So uh, the CAFE standards are about, are about energy savings. Uh, it's a provision that came, out, um, that, that came into being during the uh, energy crisis. Um, and, um, and so safety issues are co-benefits. So now we, we, we put another rationality on the table. Uh, co-benefits should be taken into account if they um, favor deregulation, uh, where they favor deregulation, um, and should be ignored or ignoring them would favor deregulation. So now we're like basically adding a second um, irrationality onto the first one. And when that sort of work goes on, and this is just one example of many, I mean, it's not surprising uh, that the courts um, uh, strike down uh, the, um, the regulatory actions. Um, now, what's going to happen now? It's hard to tell. I mean, we're at a crossroads. Um, Maybe there'll be a new administration in January, and maybe there won't be. And um, if there isn't, you know, we'll have to assess this issue based on how much more damage is done to this methodology uh, in a second Trump term. And if there is, I think there'll be pressure on the new administration, uh, although my guess is that the bipartisan consensus has served the country well from 1981 to 2017. And there'll be voices that will suggest that it makes sense um, to continue with um, 
uh, with this consensus. Um, now, the, the other piece, um, at least sort of shift to the courts. I mean, the courts are actually playing a big role here um, because over the years, in the last 20 years, the courts have pushed agencies very significantly uh, in the direction of using cost-benefit cost analysis in, a, in some form. And, you know, and I'll sort of just mention three cases. The transition from Whitman versus American Trucking um, 20 years ago, uh, where uh, Justice Scalia interpreted con- congressional silence um, in the National Ambient Air Quality Standards of the Clean Air Act to mean that the consideration of costs and therefore cost-benefit analysis was prohibited, to Entergy, uh, in which the court said congressional silence meant it was within the agency's discretion, uh, to Michigan versus EPA, where Justice Scalia now interpreted congressional silence, uh, appropriate and necessary, did not mention costs, uh, to mean that uh, the consideration of costs was required. And there are a lot of statutes that have words like appropriate and necessary or requisite, and under this interpretive scheme, you could imagine that the courts over time uh, would interpret existing statutes to impose certain cost-benefit requirements on agencies. And Justice Scalia went further by suggesting that a rule that does more harm than good um, can survive scrutiny under the Administrative Procedure Act anyway. So I think that um, the courts have been pushing agencies in this direction across many different regulatory areas. Kind of the aftermath of Dodd-Frank, the SEC lost important cases uh, for not having done appropriate cost-benefit analyses. And so if a president decided to repeal Executive Order 12866, which requires major federal rules to be um, um, justified on on cost-benefit terms, I think there is there would be an erosion of the quality of the analysis in the executive branch because there wouldn't be an agency pushing uh, for good analysis. And I think as a result, um, agencies would fare worse in the courts. And the Trump administration gives us a textbook example of what happens uh, when bad analysis uh, comes to dominate um, a regulatory policy. Um, in terms of where legal scholars stand on this issue. Um, I think my only um, quibble with Caroline is on this issue. Richard Epstein is my colleague at NYU. I recruited him when I was dean. Um, He's a wonderful colleague. He's a really good friend. Uh, I admire him and his work greatly, but he's just wrong on this issue. Uh, Agencies, as Caroline's paper points out, are not lower courts. And in fact, his view is totally at odds with what seems to me a much bigger trend uh, in the courts and in the course characterization of agencies. And the big trend we're seeing is the revitalization of a unitary executive view of the executive branch and of the president's powers under Article 2. We saw this most recently in March in the Sela Law decision, uh, where the court uh, struck down the removal provision for the head of the Consumer Financial Protection um, Bureau because uh, this individual was not removable at will by the president. And it's very hard to square uh, the court's increasing interest in a unitary executive uh, view of um, the administrative state with the view of agencies as lower courts. Um, they are either um, 
just kind of an arm uh, of the president's Article Two power, or they're like subordinates to the Article Three court. They can be both, and um, and the trend I see in the courts is um, is in the unitary executive direction and not in this um, lower court view. I mean, uh, you know, this is a view that. Uh, goes back a long way. Um, you know, there were debates about this after New Deal, but I think we're just in a different place, and I think the courts are in a different place. Um, in terms of Congress, well, I thought that what Caroline did, putting together all of these statutes and all of the different ways Congress has addressed the issue in specific statutes is hugely important and, and a huge contribution to the literature uh, of administrative law, and uh, will make this paper uh, important and influential. Um, now, on the specific question as to whether Congress would pass some kind of overarching legislation requiring uh, action across all agencies to be justified in cost-benefit terms, um, I think there are kind of two questions here. Um, you know, first, I think it's very hard for Congress to pass any legislation at all these days, um, <laughs> except um, reconciliation uh, legislation that can be justified on budget grounds. Um, and uh, and I, I don't think this is would be an exception to, to that principle. Now, um, as all of you know, uh, that's because of the filibuster in the Senate. And the filibuster in the Senate is under attack. Um, suggesting that the Senate get rid of the filibuster is no longer a fringe issue. I mean, in fact, if you think of the filibuster as having had three legs, um, we already got rid of two of them. Um, Democratic Senate got rid of the filibuster for appointments of executive branch officials and lower court judges, and the Republican Senate got rid of it for the appointment of Supreme Court justices, which is why we have uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, they wouldn't have been um, um, confirmed um, under the prior filibuster rule. All that's left of this sort of three-part um, filibuster is the filibuster for legislation. And, you know, who knows? I mean, if there were um, a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, I, I, I assume there's going to be pressure. I don't know how that's going to go. Obviously, if um, the Senate gets rid of the filibuster, either as a result of action by Democratic majority or Republican majority, legislation would be a lot easier to pass. And then maybe one can think about Congress would be interested in this. Now, the reason... Um, cost-benefit analysis didn't get bipartisan support in Congress, um, even though it has had bipartisan support in the executive branch in that uh, every president since Ronald Reagan has had in place an executive order requiring major federal regulations to be justified this way, is because the bills were always loaded up with other stuff. And, and the other stuff um, had very deregulatory consequences. So, for example, like the RAINS Act and the Regulatory Accountability Act, uh, one of the things they were trying to do is to require formal rulemaking uh, to replace notice and common rulemaking. And we've only done this once, really, in our history to decide the minimum content of peanut butter, and which doesn't seem like the world's most significant issue, and the rulemaking process took like 10 years. And I think it's kind of widely regarded to be a way uh, to stop regulation on its tracks. So while these things were presented as a way to um, make the regulatory process more rational, I mean, in fact, it was a way to bring it to a halt. So um, 
So I think that that accounts for the rejection of these bills. Um, but obviously, in a world without a filibuster, um, the prospect for congressional action looks totally different. So I'll stop here and just end in conclusion by, again, saying how much I learned from Caroline's paper, what a great paper I, I, I think it is, and how much it's going to contribute to this literature. Thanks, Ricky. I have a, a few questions of my own, but I'm, I'm very keen to, to hear Caroline's uh, reactions to your own thoughts. Caroline, anything you'd like to say in reply? Um, no, thank you so much, Ricky. So those are really excellent points. I was taking notes. So, um, I'm, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't want it, uh, to seem that I think that these trends are, um, or, uh, sort of, um, reached a critical level yet. I think there's different degrees of concern I have among all of these. I just see, them starting up in the background. And um, I'll mention just one. I think both of us would agree that the arbitrary and capricious uh, review, if that ever actually comes off the ground, uh, the pullback and uh, extreme deference to agency findings of fact, I think both of us would think that would be concerning and that would in effect be an end to the rational cost-benefit analysis that we both support because it would essentially allow agencies to do all the kinds of moves that you and Michael document in uh, saving cost-benefit analysis. Um, so I think that one's the most concerning. And you're, prob- you're right. You're right that it's probably the least likely now because we've seen such a sustained trend among especially the lower courts in doing this kind of uh, strong-armed, arbitrary and capricious review. Um, but I, I don't want to diminish it because I've, I've talked to enough folks where I, I've just heard this come up more often. So I, I don't, I want this to be on everyone's radar because um, I'm worried about it. And it is not just Richard Epstein. Um, Jeff Podinowski had a paper where he also uh, documented this kind of growing view among some folks. And just speaking to officials from DOJ when they held a public conference, uh, I think it was last December, uh, there were some that spoke about this kind of policy making by courts by having this strong armed arbitrary and capricious review. So I think there is a, a messaging and a signaling about what arbitrary and capricious review is doing that I think we do need to pay attention to, especially if, as I agree with you, there is this trend towards the unitary executive, the view that the president um, has control of agencies, etc. Because I think those two combined would be not just uh, concerning for cost-benefit analysis, but just in general agency decision-making, especially when Congress has committed the agency to use its expertise and not uh, to uh, go at the whim of the president. Uh, so I, I, that's the one thing I really wanted to flag on the Congress, why Congress hasn't acted. You're exactly right. And I need to add a lot more to that. I, I don't suggest, um, so I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to ignore the failures that have happened in the past. I want to bring them up. And you're exactly right. The Regulatory Accountability Act, not just that it required more on cost-benefit analysis than Congress typically does, but but of course it required a lot more. And I recall there was, a, I think, a... Uh, op-ed by Cass Sunstein around that time where he noted that he thought that based on just hearing uh, uh, the Congress um, hearings about it, uh, this was back, I think, in uh, 2017, the summer of 2017, that he noted that he thought there was maybe bipartisan consensus along uh, on the cost-benefit side of it, but it's just all the other 
parts of the RAA that uh, kind of led to it not being enacted. Um, so I think that's right. I guess I only want to say that if there were these threats that uh, if these threats ever rose to a higher level and Congress wanted to act, then I guess what I'm saying is uh, trying to emphasize the point that a more narrow view is much more likely and could go a long way uh, to being beneficial in a way that I think both sides would support. Um, and and I guess that's all I wanted to say now, but I really appreciate the comments and I, I'm I'm excited about your book actually coming out soon too. Thank you. No, uh, oh, go ahead, Ricky, please. Adam? Yeah, please go ahead. Um, I mean, I totally see why um, the president um, would find um, kind of robust invocation of the arbitrary and capricious, um, uh, of arbitrary and capricious review to be obnoxious. Um, and, and I can imagine that courts might, you know, understand that as well. Um, and I think that could very well happen. I mean, we haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, certainly lower courts have, for the most part, not done it, and the Supreme Court has not pushed back. And I'll come back to the Supreme Court in a minute. But I don't think that if that were to happen, I don't think it's going to be because of the view that um, agencies are somehow akin to lower courts. I think it'll be on separation of powers, on kind of like different separation of powers grounds. Um, that is that the executive branch uh, deserves sort of more leeway. Um but it will be on a kind of a different characterization of agencies because I don't think it's going to be on a characterization of agencies that puts, um, you know, that creates a sort of a front to the unitary executive doctrine. It, it's going to have to be on different grounds. But I agree with you that there could be frustration on the part of either this president or future presidents. And there might be um, judges who will hear that frustration and who might uh, do an about turn, although we haven't seen that yet. But the, maybe the more serious issue is Michigan versus EPA, where, um, the Supreme Court basically, um, put in, uh, a fairly robust requirement, both as an interpretation of a statute that didn't specifically address the issue, which is really silent on the issue, but also the APA and a lot of the statements about, um, uh, regulations that do more harm than good can stand and so on, um, which were dicta because it, it wasn't, it wasn't like this regulation actually, you know, did that, but it was, it was nonetheless a statement by the Supreme Court. Um, um, a recent and, and in some sense, no justice took the position, the contrary position because the dissenters really just dissented on at what stage the consideration of costs and benefits had to happen. I mean, they agreed that it had to happen. Um, and they just thought that if it happened at a later point in the regulatory proceeding, that'd be okay. So I think that, you know, Michigan versus EPA stands as a pretty, um, uh, pretty, uh, big hurdle. Um, I mean, obviously things can change. And also it's not just, you know, it's not an outlier case. I mean, I see it as part of a trend from Whitman to Michigan of the court having kind of greater interest in pushing agencies, uh, to take a close look at, um, the cost of regulation, um, and um, uh, which implies also taking a close look at the benefits of regulation. So I, I definitely see it as a possibility. I would characterize it slightly differently, and I would put Michigan as a possible obstacle to a kind of quick move in that direction. Now, I wouldn't be a good Gray Center director if I didn't flag a couple of older working papers that have come up along the way. Uh, Caroline mentioned Jeffrey Pochanowski's really 
I think, really impressive paper in the Harvard Law Review on current development of conservative administrative law. It's called uh, Neoclassical Administrative Law. And I have to say, it's one of my favorite papers that have ever come out of the, the Gray Center's uh, working paper series. Uh, another paper, though, and it go- goes to the point that, that Ricky just mentioned, the, the trends in the court's focus on cost-benefit analysis, is a paper that Paul Noe wrote uh, with John Graham. It was called The Ascendancy of the Cost-Benefit State, with a question mark at the end, sort of asking, where is this headed? Um, obviously, Paul's very much in favor of seeing more cost-benefit analysis in these places, and John as well. That was a Gray Center working paper that was later published by the Administrative Law Review. But in thinking of this transition um, of cost-benefit analysis from the executive orders in the White House to judicial review, um, I always think back to an essay from a long, long time ago, something that Antonin Scalia wrote in 1983, back when he was still chairman of the ABA. He was looking at trends in in regulation. And of course, in 1983, the ink was still, you know, barely dry on Executive Order 12291. And Scalia, he observed, you know, the benefits of, of cost-benefit analysis, so to speak. But he then focused on, on what he saw as perhaps a, a cost of it. And let me just quote a few lines. He said, the fact is, however, that these requirements, namely the cost-benefit requirements, foster a view of rulemaking as a more or less mechanical, value-free, non-political exercise, and despite the exclusion of judicial review from the executive orders, judges do not think and write in another world what comes to be regarded within the executive and the Congress as a requirement of sound administration will ultimately be reflected in the judicial application of the arbitrary and capricious standard as well. That's the end of the quote. Now, this essay, I mean, it was just a little note he wrote in, I think, probably the Administrative Law Review since he was the ABA chairman. It's really fascinating in hindsight because, of course, he did write Michigan versus EPA, the case that Ricky alluded to, where the court, I mean, they didn't say that they were imposing a net benefit requirement on rulemaking, but they did say that, the court did say that when the costs dwarf the benefits, it raises the specter of arbitrary and capricious review. So I, I always think back to that Scalia essay, one, because it's sort of an odd irony of the, that Scalia warned about this development of the judicialization of cost-benefit analysis in 83, and then he wound up writing the opinion that really seems to come closest to something like a cost-benefit state. But my question goes to the point he was raising in 83, which is, isn't there a risk that the more we focus on cost-benefit analysis as the core mechanism of agency evaluation of a rule, isn't there the risk that Scalia saw that we'll, we, we, we come to see rulemaking less as a, a, a debate in, in the values at, 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 at the values at issue in a rulemaking and we, we think of it more as, as just a purely technical exercise? And isn't that in some ways a bad thing? Um, so I, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and it's something that I do think about a lot, and I look forward to hearing Ricky's views on this. So this is a common criticism that's raised um, about cost-benefit analysis, and it also reminds me, so it's not just uh, Scalia, you have on the other side, Amy Sinden has brought this up. Uh, she's written, the danger of cost-benefit li- analysis lies in its false promise of determinacy, its pre- pretense of objectivity and scientific accuracy. So I always, uh, my response to this is always, twofold. Um, the first is that 
It, so I should flag, I've written before with Kip Viscuzzi on how courts actually look at cost-benefit analysis um, and how they look at these different uh, parts of it. And uh, courts do defer on some of the technical issues, um, but they do still play a robust role in kind of looking at the cons- uh, consistency between issues. And I've written by this about how this has a constraining role um, on uh Policymaking over time. So courts do play a role. Um, and it's, it's sometimes on the technical, a lot of times they'll leave the technical to the agency. But then more to the point, um, when you do a cost benefit analysis, there's some aspects you're just trying to estimate different f- impacts. So you're looking at uh, expected costs, expected benefits. But then of course, in order to compare apples to apples, um, you have to try to monetize these effects to the extent possible. And it's in this step that there are these value judgments. Like how much as a society do we value an increase in this kind of cost or an increase in this kind of benefit? The beauty of cost-benefit analysis is that well, we can't avoid making these kinds of judgments in rulemaking. Cost-benefit analysis, at the very least, makes these judgments transparent. We can look at the line in the cost-benefit analysis and see what value was placed on this and what the basis for that value is, and then we can agree or disagree with it. And that's exactly what we've seen going on during the Trump administration. Um, without cost-benefit analysis, we don't see those lines. We don't see what judgments have been made. So, for example, in those kinds of uh, Trump administration actions that did not involve cost-benefit analysis, because, say, they involved guidance, that has been one of the problems, is that you, we didn't see what values were placed on different parts uh, that are relevant to the policymaking. So I think that... Um, Attacking cost-benefit analysis in this way is sort of uh, strange because the alternative to cost-benefit analysis would actually make this sort of uh, worse, and it, it wouldn't. It would be less transparent, and it would be less. It would be more obscure how agencies are making these decisions. Ricky, the, the question that Scalia posed back then really does go to the heart of so much of of your own work at at NYU, and so I know this is an issue you've grappled with and, and argued about for quite a long time. Yeah, so um, I I think my first reaction to this um, old, old paper is that it would be mechanical. I mean, I think he's right that it would be mechanical if there was some kind of mandate to agencies to, like, um, do a sweeping review of the whole world of possible actions that could be taken and then undertake all of the actions that are net beneficial. But of course, that's not what goes on at all. I mean, the agencies and the presidents define their priorities. And so they decide where to focus uh, their attention. Um, And um, so, for example, President Obama um, focused some significant attention on greenhouse gas regulation, at least in his second term. If Mitt Romney had won uh, the 2012 election, uh, my guess is that he wouldn't have focused his attention on that, might have focused his attention on something else. Um, And it's not like the fact that cost-benefit analysis is there would have forced an Obama administration and Romney administration to do exactly the same thing. It wouldn't have. They would have focused on different things and and brought the power of the federal government to bear um, in different areas. And I think that's appropriate. I mean, that's why we have presidential elections and why um, uh, people bother to run for president. Um, and um, 
But the point still is that once a president decides to focus on something, um, we probably should make sure that um, this something is not uh, creating um, significant harms in society. I mean, you know, we sort of justify um, government action as correcting market failures. I assume, you know, I mean, I, I certainly see the world that way. I assume this is... Um, a way of thinking about it that it's, um, you know, that feels familiar to the Gray Center. Um, and so, you know, if people could take care of these issues themselves, then maybe we would let them do it, but they're externalities. And so, um, I mean, I think all of us make um, certain, at least, you know, informal cost-benefit decisions um, in our daily lives. You know, I kind of clean my kitchen counter a lot more than my kitchen floor because I worry about food poisoning. Uh, I don't worry about crossing the street in front of my house, but I would never cross an interstate highway. Um, you know, those are all judgments that we make as individuals. But sometimes those judgments can't uh, protect us in the way that we want, or we can get the sort of benefits because there are these externalities. And then we sort of ask government to do that. And to some extent, cost-benefit analysis makes government mimic decisions that we would make as individuals. Um, to say, um, you know, I mean, I, I would think that um, uh, for an administrative agency to say, um, this rule is going to create great harm to the American people, but um, it's consistent with our ideology, I, I, I think that shouldn't work. I mean, Congress can do that because Congress... Um, you know, has a different kind of legitimacy. But I don't think the administrative agency should do that. And frankly, I don't think anyone across the political spectrum should want them to do that, although I, I understand that there are people on both sides of the spectrum that um, chafe uh, under cost-benefit analysis. I mean, initially it was liberals, now it's actually more conservatives. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I sort of feel like I've been consistent across <laughs> across time so <laughs> in this debate, but, uh, but I've observed uh, the shifts. <laughs> I have, too. I think it has been a very interesting development to see um, some bristling at cost-benefit analysis uh, on, the, on the, the right side of the political spectrum. Maybe we'll, we'll end with this, just a, at least an, an observation that occurred to me during the conversation and, and maybe a question. We're recording this episode in late September, a few weeks before the episode will air. And later today, uh, the Gray Center is having a, a webinar, an online seminar, on the National Environmental Policy Act. And it's the 50th anniversary to mark the in observation of the 50th anniversary this year of 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 NEPA, and uh, we'll be talking about the way the NEPA environmental impact statement process has worked, the way it maybe ways that it needs reform. And the defining feature of NEPA is that it's not a rule of decision; it's just a rule of process. It's a requirement that agencies consider and analyze the reasonably foreseeable significant environmental impacts of their actions. And in reading Caroline's paper and in listening to your conversation just now, I was thinking about the statutes that Caroline catalogs where Congress just requires the consideration of costs and, and benefits. And I'm curious whether you think it's it would be better for Congress, if it continues to legislate in this area, to legislate in terms of just considering costs and benefits, or would it be better for Congress to take the, the further step, as in those executive orders, and really make it a rule of decision. And I'm really, I'm not sure, I guess what I'm curious about is not just 
cost-benefit analysis as a process rather than a, a rule of, of decision, but also whether it makes a difference when Congress is the one imposing the standard versus the executive branch. I, I hope that question makes sense. It was a little meandering. Um, Ricky, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. I mean, you know, I think there should be reason for Congress to act. And um, I think the bipartisan consensus of the executive orders have served us well. Um, I don't see a particular problem with it. Um, uh, the courts haven't rushed to interpret statutes to say that the consideration of costs or benefits is prohibited. I mean, it, it's happened very rarely. And, you know, it may be that Whitman will sort of stand as an exception to this developing consensus around Michigan with EPA. Um, so I, 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 now I don't see a strong reason. If in a specific statute Congress wants it to be done in a particular way, then I think there is a good reason for Congress to uh, explain uh, the particular risk management framework. But other than that, I think that the world has served us well. Now, if this consensus disappears, if this president or the next president repeals Executive Order 12866 and Congress thinks that's a turn in the wrong direction, then there would be actually reason for to legislate. But from my perspective, the, I mean, the formal status quo, not the application of the status quo by this administration, which I re- really regard as a charade, um, but the formal status quo is, is fine, has served us well. I don't actually see reason for congressional action. Well, thanks, Ricky. And before I, I give Caroline the, the final word, I just want to say thanks again for joining us today. I'm delighted. It was a lot of fun. Great. And Caroline, do you have any, any thoughts on my sort of meandering analogy between cost-benefit analysis and NEPA or, or any closing thoughts in general? Uh, well, thank you to both of you, first of all. I've really enjoyed uh, just talking with you both about the paper, but in general, uh, the larger issues raised by cost-benefit analysis. I think I I personally would uh, would welcome Congress uh, requiring as a decision rule some cost-benefit analysis as long as there are appropriate caveats there. So the biggest thing that comes to mind is uh, unquantified benefits, uh, which, you know, at any point in our time, we're not going to have uh, the empirical evidence to quantify all impacts, and some of these might be very important. So there must be space for an agency to make a value judgment uh, what cost-benefit analysis does is it has the agency explicitly uh, discuss this and make the judgment and give reasons for why it believes these are important benefits. And I think that this is uh, good. This promotes accountability, promotes transparency, uh, and promotes legitimacy of the agency's actions. I, um, But I also think that as long as some sort of arbitrary and capricious review remains, even if it's not... Uh, specifically tied to um, more harm than good, um, then even Congress requiring consideration should do enough because at the point that the agency considers and shows costs and benefits and then deviates, it has to show a good reason. This is just a general under State Farm, which comes from the Supreme Court, it has to give a good reason for deviating in some way um, from these. And I think that that does enough to uh, underscore these things that we all care about, which is that agencies think about both uh, what they're doing, um, all the effects of the actions. Um, and I guess I'll end with that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Caroline. Thanks for not just for joining us today on the podcast, but also for this, this really terrific working paper. I hope it gets a lot of attention and spurs debate. 
And thanks, as always, to our audience for tuning in to this episode. It's one in a mini-series of episodes on Congress and its relation to administration with a variety of working papers on different topics. I hope you'll tune into each episode and look for the papers. Until then, join us for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. 